Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Open the anthology Women of the Beat Generation at page 256 and read the words of Brother Antoninus, William Everson, who said, quote, A series of women poets emerged in San Francisco who identified with the established beat poets even as they challenged them on their grounds, including Joanne Kiger and Mary Norbert Corti. Of these, the career of Mary Norbert Corti most sharply defines the historic tension between the women of service and the women of passion. The strongest woman poet to emerge in the West, she became a student of Lou Welch, cracking convention within the bastion of the religious order. Raised in a devout family, joining the convent right out of high school in 1952, and stunned by two events in the tumultuous 1960s, Mary Norbert Cordy is still make, making striking poems, deeply connected to the land in extreme southern Cascadia, in the town of Willits, where she lives off the grid and keeps on keeping on. Right? <laughs> it's so delightful to be here at your place and have this kind of hospitality. We're very grateful. Well, I'm glad you're here, I, I, and I thank you for being here. Your family was a very devout family, and going into the convent to live life as a nun was a very natural development. That is a, an exceedingly simple way of putting it. I am, in a way, really sorry that Brenda saw it that way. Um, it's true. My family were are staunch, devout Catholics, um, Jesuit trained, um, really loyal to the church, and it was natural in a way because. Now, looking back with how many years' experience understanding what on earth I was thinking at 18, um, I wanted out of the world. I wanted to live a life that was separate from the kind of life that I had been reared in. Um, upper middle class, uh, very conservative, very corporate, uh, supportive. Um, I was, this is hard for me to say because I don't want to hurt my family. On the other hand, I need to tell the truth. I was raised by a bunch of snobs. With very strong class distinctions. Um which now, to me, seem um, 
not exactly meaningless because they exert such a strong influence on our lives. But I was raised in the upper echelons of white privilege, having no idea what white privilege was, or is, or anything like that. Interestingly, the my first exposure to racism, um, which I didn't suss out until many years later, was right after Pearl Harbor. My family had a housekeeper, Gracie, and her father was the gardener. Uh, Gracie was... Um, I think Nisei, uh, uh, yeah, I think she was born in this country. Her father was immigrant. Um, and Gracie was taken away. And my mother got very, very nervous as a girl in World War One. She had seen how people with German names were treated. We had a German name. We had an Italian uh, woman who came in to do the laundry. And my mother, when she saw Gracie taken off, because she was an alien and possibly one of the enemy, she was convinced that the government would come after Josie, the laundress, and come after us, because Josie was Italian, immigrant, and we were the grandchildren of immigrants. You had the whole axis right there in the household. The whole axis right there in the household. And my, my mother was terrified the entire length of the war. And I realize now, many years later, Gracie was taken off because she was a woman of color. And we were not because we were white. And it, it both sickens me and makes me angry. And very, very sad considering the immigration crisis we're going through right now. And... That is an aside that I could take hours to waste time and electricity on. <laughs> I don't. I don't think it's a waste of time. But Brenda Knight, the editor of Women of the Beat Generation, is who you were referring to when you said yes, Brenda. yes, Brenda. Brenda is an amazing woman. She really is. She's. Um, that book is about time. <laughs> it's about time that book came out, and she was the right person to do it. What did, what did it do for you to have that book come out? People began to pay attention to my work, um... There is, 
a difficulty in that book that uh, I would like to correct now if I could do it in neon letters 10 feet high I would it's my understanding because I don't do internet that it's all over the internet that I ran off with Allen Ginsberg I did not <laughs> But it might have been your brother or <laughs> your cousin who ran up with it. But that poem, you're referring to that poem uh, that was written there, was about a dream. Was about a dream that Eddie made the cook had. And it's true that she dreamed it. It's not true that I ran off. Right. And I consider that kind of thing the most odious name-dropping you can do <laughs> is to say you ran off with somebody. Oh! You want to read You want to read that? Sure. Here's your glasses right here. Yeah. Okay. Where is it here? Oh, the poem. Then he made the cook dream Sister Mary ran off with Allen Ginsberg. The halls, dark, long, hard, enough to have survived the six quake where survival was measured by the sound of Mother Superior's rosary beads. She dreamed. The cook dreamed. The other nuns dreamed impossible dreams of silver visions, pelagic noises in the groaning night. Dreaming was a mission she could not renounce night as a place to see all freedoms looming ahead, like a sweet dragon, like a cross with its circling tail. She ran away in everybody's dreams, calling out like a booming flame, running, running into the lines of bards and lions, lovers and birds, running with her arms out wide into the bright, flapping dark. <laughs> Oh, she did. Oh, she did. She put a note underneath. Oh, I didn't know that. None of my copies have it. Is it? This might be a later edition of the book then, huh? She still have, has Ginsburg's name spelled with a U, though, in it. A true story about a dream really dreamed by the cook at the St. Rose Convent after Sister Mary Norricarty attended the Berkeley Poetry Conference. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, the cook's husband was also the janitor. And he would give me a look every so often because he knew that I was showing up in different places at different times. And he knew because he was a jazz musician. <laughs> and now I realized that a whole bunch of people who had day jobs 
and and survived that way or fed their kids that way were also artists of stature and Eddie May was one of them so the 1965 Berkeley Poetry Conference is one of those two events that uh, I alluded to in my introduction. Um, the way I understand it is that you got special dispensation from the Mother Superior to attend this conference. Yes. And you well, had a, it, I got permission. I don't know how special it was. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here, but... Um, that's a good example of the kind of community I was in. They valued scholarship. They valued it a lot. And anything that advanced scholarship, that advanced art, they, they valued art. Not the people who practiced it necessarily, but they valued the work. And that's how I got permission. It wasn't exactly a special dispensation. Later on, I, I sought special dispensation to go different places at night. But that was not as special as one would think because they valued scholarship. And you'd proven yourself as a scholar by studying Silver Latin. Yeah. So yeah. they knew that you were a real scholar. I think so. I think they valued my scholarship. I know when, just before I left, I was asked to translate into English the um, chants for the ceremony of uh, making your vows and receiving the habit, which was kind of a hoot. We've been singing these chants, you know, blithely all these years. And I came to the one translation, and I went to another one of the nuns, and I said, I don't know if this is going to pass. And she said, well, what is it? And it's, I... I am the bride of Christ. I have taken Jesus and I will have no other as my lover. I said, I don't think they're going to go for that. And she said, I don't think they are either. <laughs> I don't remember how we adjusted it. But, you know, I mean, that's the way to talk about it. And I'm not going to have anybody in my bed except Jesus. And... Jesus is in my heart. And, you know, I'm making a vow. Chastity. So, in a way, to go down the good old Victorian, Puritan, bourgeoisie, path of we don't talk about sex 
I think it's kind of sad, frankly. So I, I sort of preferred the old Latin. <laughs> but the fact that I was asked to do the translation because I was a poet and because I was a Latin scholar, I felt was very, very kind of them. Um... Because Mother Superior asked me to do it and she knew I was leaving. She was the only one who knew. I would like to tell you about that woman for a moment. The community that I was in valued scholarship, as I said. Very, very conservative socially and politically, they ran very upper-class boarding schools and um, had very upper-class ideas of behavior. And this woman was a very conservative woman. I never talked politics with her, but I could tell. And after I left the community, um, it, that whole process takes some time to do it properly, to get permission to go. And so I had not signed my separation papers yet when I was living in the commune in uh, Marin County and we were all busted. And I was busted for two joints. And this is something like 2 o'clock in the morning, and our lawyer showed up. And I said to him, I was supposed to go to the convent tomorrow to sign my separation papers, only I won't be able to be there. And there's going to be a big splash in the newspaper. Would you please call... Mother Superior, and I gave him the name and explained to her why I'm not going to show up. And he said, sure. So he told me later on that the first question that Mother Superior asked after he told her what had happened was, does she need bail? She doesn't need to be in there, not for that. I, I think that was... It's something I call leaping across the great daring. You just do a mitzvah. You know, you do the right thing because it's the right thing and you don't give a damn for the rest. So, I, I, wanna, I want that to be known. I want people to understand that there was something there in that community of women 
that is almost indescribable in a way. I have to interject by saying that I worked for an Indian tribe for 20 years. And so I'm having now a hard time looking back, putting names to things, because they don't. It's just is. It's just there. And how to explain? I mean, you can do all kinds of uh, um, crass kinds of observations. I mean, I was in love with the ritual. It was magnificent. I, you know, they say prayer is lifting of the mind and heart to God. Well, let me tell you, my mind and heart were lifted. And for, for a long time, and then, I don't know, after the Berkeley Poetry Conference, it took a couple of years, but I came to realize that I was living and working and praying with women with whom I had nothing in common anymore except the fact that we lived and worked and prayed together. And that was about it. What happened at Berkeley? The only way I can put it is the world of poetry opened up to me. Was it? It opened out. Who was reading at the time that happened? Robert Duncan... Um, Do you remember the moment? Was there a specific moment where a specific poet was uh, at the at the mic, or was it just the sum total of Duncan and Olson? And it was the sum total of Duncan and Olson and who else? Creeley. Creeley. Lou Welch. Um, wrangling with Gary Snyder. Um, who else was there? I met Lenore Kandel. I met Joanne Kiger. I met uh, Jean and Hillary Fowler. I met John Oliver Simon. All those young poets. I met John Oliver Simon because I was sitting next to the window in the classroom and he climbed up and sat in the... They had deep recessed windows and he came and sat in the window so he could hear what was going on. And that's how I met him. And... Jack Spicer? Jack Spicer. You interjected Thank about uh, labor songs of the 30s. And uh, he responded to you the following night, but you weren't in the audience to hear him read from from uh, his book. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, yeah, he was going on and on about the death of poetry. And I said, well, well wait a minute. <laughs> I said, you may not consider this poetry, but I think it's important. Um, and I still do, because I think one of the great obligations of the poet is to be 
a witness to her age, a witness to her time, a witness to the spirit. And I'm not talking about the didactic nature of poetry, and I fully, fully, fully subscribe to T.S. Eliot's rejoinder when somebody said, what does this line mean? And he said, whatever you want it to mean. Which is, to me, the perfect answer. Because, I mean, look what Laris and Panatis brought out in you. You know, I went on about how nice they were to me and how great it is, and I talk about the ancestors, and I know who they are, that you name them. And that makes a difference. Okay. Lars at Panatis, Buddha Bear, the Angel, the Cat, these three, watch. Under their benevolent gaze, scorpions become docile, mice stay outside, spiders calmly take care of flies, children see squabbling, men pick up after themselves. One must pay attention over long little years to the long line of little gods, ancestors, in portraits, lithographs, shelved statues. They make, made us. They live with us. We are their children. We are their children. <laughs> Fantastic. And Brittany, when she read your poem, she read it and then she'd look up and look around the room at all the ancestors that I have hanging around here, you know. Um, somebody asked me once, how come I tacked things up on the wall? And the only answer I could give was, well, you know, I like looking at them. <laughs> but also, they all mean something to me. Um, yeah. So I wrote a poem in response to that, and that's the poem that you've referenced. Um, it said that Jack Spicer uh, wrote the last letter of his life to you. Have you heard that? Really? The last known letter that he ever sent was to you. Oh, my God. That's my understanding. Did he keep a copy? I I don't know. I think Al Amel Alcalé would be the person to ask about that. I forget where I read that. It might have been... My God, you know... 
there are three very important people in my life from whom I've received letters, and I don't have a single one of them. The letter from Lou Welch disappeared, the letter from Thomas Merton disappeared, and now the letter from Jack Spicer disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, you studied with Lou Welch. Yes. Tell us about how you met him. Did you meet him at Berkeley, obviously? Met him at the poetry conference, and then he took over Gary Snyder's uh, Cal Extension class in San Francisco, and I signed up for it. And I was allowed to go. He asked me in to read at one of the classes, and Mother Superior went with me. I remember that. And uh, another time, Mother Superior took me to a meeting, <laughs> I don't know, somewhere in San Francisco to avoid my going out to a peace rally which I wasn't supposed to do. Um, and I think that issue, the wrangle that I had with the Mother Superior over my working with the peace community to, to end the war, um, she was horrified. I. I stood on a street corner and passed out pamphlets, and she was horrified. What would the bishop say? Um, the whole thing, and that was when I realized that appearances were more important than convictions or appearances were indications of inner convictions. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but that's when I realized that I was living and working and praying with women with whom I had nothing in common. And it was hypocrisy. It was terrible hypocrisy. The March on Washington was the other historic event that I alluded to in my introduction. The March on Washington had an effect on you. Watching it on TV, were you able to see it on TV? Yes, I, I watched it on TV. And it wasn't just the the kind of presence that Martin Luther King had, but it was also the songs that were sung that day. And Peter, Paul, and Mary sang If I Had a Hammer, and I was enthralled by that. I love music. I love singing. Um, and from going through you know how when you watch an adolescent kid sing along with a record and they're singing the words and they're not paying any attention to what they're singing? Well, I had done that for years. And then after hearing If I Had a Hammer, I began to pay attention to what the songs were saying. 
and I began to hear about Bob Dylan and what he had to say and I was blown away realizing that there was another world out there than the one of white privilege in which I dwelt. What did you learn from Lou Welch? To be simple. To be straightforward. To tell the truth. And what he said in that letter to me, which I, I pretty much remember, he said that the call of poetry was as great as any priesthood in any religious persuasion could ever imagine to be. And that's... You know, that's, he answered the calling. He did. Did you ever have any sense he could be the kind of guy who would walk into the woods and never come back? Lou drank. And at the time, no, I did not have a sense. Now I understand. Lou didn't have the escape hatch that I think it was William Styron. I believe. It was a novelist, very famous, and I think it was William Styron who had trouble with drinking, I believe. And he hit bottom. And so he was going to end it all. And he wrote a suicide note. And being a writer, of course, he looked it over and he said, I, I can't leave the world with this crap. <laughs> I think that's mo one of the most beautiful stories I've ever, ever heard. So he checked himself into the hospital and got well. And Lou checked himself into the woods and just didn't come back. And didn't come back, yeah. And up there... There are little caves and hidey holes in those mountains that, you know, of course they never found him. He didn't want to be found. Um, 
being around someone who drinks himself to death is very, very hard on the people who are around him or her. And dealing with that disease is I can't find the words. One of your other teachers was uh, William Everson, Brother Antoninus. D did you meet him when he was Brother Antoninus? Yes. Yes. I used to visit him and we would sit in the kitchen at the Priory in, in this little breakfast booth and talk poetry and talk poetry and talk poetry and talk shop. I love writers who can talk shop nicely. Bob Dylan is one. Surprisingly, Jack Nicholson is another. Both of whom I think are prime examples that great artists are not necessarily nice people. <laughs> so, anyway... I think I'm kind of off the tack now. Where were we? <laughs> well, we were on Brother Antoninus, and oh uh... uh, yeah, yeah, and um, and then I saw him fairly frequently. He was teaching at UC Santa Cruz, and I lived down there for a couple of years, and I went to his class, and. Um, I liked it. I liked his class. I think he, um, was concerned with the position of the poet in the world, just as Lou was, just as we all are. And, um... I maintain that poets are the soul of any nation. Um, but maybe that's only how we poets regard ourselves. <laughs> I don't know. Going back to the convent, um, near the end there, you were taking food out of the pantry to feed the diggers and Diane de Prima and, and people yes. associated with that. Tell us yes. about that. So a lot of salami? What, what would you take to them? Turkey. Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have requests? Hey, get us some, get us some potatoes. <laughs> Can you bring some crackers? I mean, what was it? Well, I, I met Diane... When the diggers gave big Thanksgiving dinner, and every year the girls in the school where I taught would solicit uh, Thanksgiving baskets. And they had about five or six turkeys left over. We had the convent turkey. So I said, come on, let's give them to the diggers. And that's when I found out that there were two types of poor. 
to which we paid attention. One was the deserving poor, and the other was, what, the hippies, the rest, whatever. But, and we were to pay attention only to the deserving poor, whatever that meant. So, of course, you know, I was looked on with... I felt... <laughs> I liked that whole episode because I felt a lot like St. Bridget. St. Bridget gave everything away. And when she finished giving away all her possessions, she gave away her father's possessions <laughs> and her mother's possessions and all her siblings' possessions and the castle and the crops. Everything. She gave it away. She's a great saint. She was also a goddess in the Gaelic tradition, um, as was Maeve, a goddess in the Gaelic tradition. Um, I'm reminded of a poem that you have that references the saints, and I think it references... St. Bridget. Oh, Hibernian voodoo. Is that, is that the one? I don't have a, I don't have a table of contents here, so it's. Yeah, I know. I should have done no, that. That's all right. Well, I understand you can get the computer to do that, but I have no idea how. Here it is. Uh, yeah. Hibernian voodoo. Efficacious when practiced properly, that is, when correct saints are invoked. Saint Bridget for giving, Saint Earth for standing, Saint Neot for taking away. All that grace hiding under miner's lettuce and clover leaf, the woods peopled with ancient friends enemies, and coyotes' Irish clone. They come out at night, preferring the moon. Sun makes them wispy and weak, but not so weak as to weaken their power, their poise, their eternal, boundless knack for wringing our necks with promises and double entendre. Years of bloodlust, oppression by reavers and Cromwellian grotesques have never and never will suppress the look in leprechauns' eyes. And when lightning strikes on top of the house, look out, see them all, all of them dancing, dancing in the liquid light. There's a postscript to that poem. Yes. <laughs> Probably Liquid Light is Jameson's or Bushmills. <laughs> Cascadian Prophet supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life 
reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org.